Uh, but as we come to Psalm 8, let's pray together. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we pray, Lord, uh, please now open the eyes of our hearts that we might see and behold your majesty and glory. And as we contemplate your glory this morning, we pray that by your spirit, you might transform us more and more into the image of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you hold a grain of sand at arm's length and look up at the night sky, at the area of the night sky covered by that tiny grain of sand with the most powerful telescope ever invented by human beings, this is what you would see. That's the first image from NASA's new James Webb Space Telescope revealed to the world earlier in July this year. As I say, that image shows an area of the night sky equivalent to a grain of sand as you look up at it like that. That's what that is. And in that picture, what you can see, each one of those things is a galaxy. Thousands and thousands of galaxies. And each one of those galaxies containing billions of stars, just like our sun. How do you feel, how do you respond when you, you think about that, when you look up at the stars at night and see the vast expanse of space in front of you? There are three main ways I think human beings respond to this vast, amazing universe that we live in. The first response is what we might call the aren't we amazing response. Uh, that's captured in what President Joe Biden said when those images were released. In the press conference, he said this. He said, these images remind the world that we can do big things, that there's nothing beyond our capacity. Basically, what he's saying is, aren't we amazing that we built something like this telescope and shot it a million miles into space to take pictures of the universe like that? Aren't we amazing? Or there's what we might call the aren't we tiny response. Uh, this is a picture of our planet. You probably can't even see it. There is, I promise, a dot there. Uh, that picture was taken back in 1990, so some of you remember this, uh, when Voyager 1 spacecraft left our solar system, crossed into interstellar darkness, uh, four billion miles from Earth, it turned around, flipped its cameras back to Earth, and took that last picture before it died completely and floated off into space. That's the Earth, that pale blue dot. And the scientist who suggested taking that picture was a guy called Carl Sagan. And he later wrote this. He said, look at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of all of our joys and sufferings, thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust 
suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Our planet is an isolated, lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic darkness. Basically, what he's saying is, aren't we tiny? Our collective self of, uh, our collective sense of self-importance is nothing more than a delusion of grandeur. Aren't we tiny? And I, I hope you can see there's actually uh, some truth in both of those responses. Aren't we amazing and aren't we tiny? Aren't we amazing? Well, yeah, human beings are amazing, actually, when you think about the kind of things we can do. And aren't we tiny? Well, yeah, when you look at the universe, absolutely. We see both of those elements in Psalm 8. But David knows we will never truly understand ourselves or our place in this vast universe until we understand who God is, the one who, who put us here. To understand humanity, we have to first grasp deity. And so the third response, David's response, is what we might call the isn't God amazing response. It's there in verse 1. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. And in Psalm 8, David is inviting us to join him in singing that song. Isn't God amazing? Sing that song of praise to the Lord, celebrating the glory and beauty and majesty of God. And Psalm 8 shows us five ways we see the majesty of God. Five ways we see the majesty of God. Here's the first one. See the majesty of God in creation. See the majesty of God in creation, verse 1. I wonder what you see when you look up at the stars at night. What do you see when you look at thunder and lightning in a storm? What do you see when you walk through a forest and, and, and listen to the birds singing? What do you see when you stand at the top of a mountain and look back down? Psalm 8 tells us that we're meant to see the majestic, the, the majestic glory of God on display. See, this world, it's like a, a ginormous art gallery. Every sunrise, every storm, every colour, every creature, every plant, every mountain peak is showing us the majesty of the one who made them. This world is filled with the glory of God. The creation is radiant with his splendour made visible for us to see in the universe. And according to verse 3, all we're seeing is the work of God's fingers. This is like what God does with some finger paints. If God did that, all of this, with his fingers, then what must God himself be like? Look. Don't just... Allow this daily display of glory to pass you by. See the majesty of God in creation. And secondly, see the majesty of God in children's praise. 
verse 2. See the majesty of God in children's praise. It's, Psalm 8 is amazing, isn't it? Because it, it says if you want to see the majesty of God, you don't have to look in a telescope or climb a mountain. You can just walk 10 meters down into that room. Because the God whose praise is sung in creation is echoed in, in the creche, in the children's room, in the small voices of children and infants praising God. Now, I know that firsthand because twice this week, Lydia has humbled my grown-up cynicism with her simple childlike praise. Uh, we were at the beach on Bank Holiday Monday, and I asked Lydia, Lydia, why is the sky blue? And I was about to show off with my uh, grown-up knowledge about how the sun's light gets reflected, and, and that's why the sky is blue. And Lydia just turned to me and she said, because Jesus made it that way. I had failed to do the first point of the sermon. I'd failed to see the majesty of God in creation, and I needed a three-year-old to correct me, to point out where I'd missed the majesty of God in creation. Again, on Friday, we were in the park uh, on the swings, and I asked Lydia, are you having fun? And she blurted out an answer that wasn't really that relevant. She said, Jesus gave us these swings. <laughs> and I, I laughed to myself slightly awkwardly as the sort of parent on the other swing looked at me like... What on earth is your child talking about? And um, the context this is, in the pandemic, the swings in the park were vandalised and they were removed. And so often at night we would pray for God to bring the swings back. And now they're back. They've been back a, a while now. I'd forgotten that. I'd forgotten how we prayed, how uh, God had answered our prayers, but she hadn't. She reminded me to see the majesty of God in the way he cares for us even in bringing back swings. That's why having children as part of our church family is such a precious, valuable, important thing for us. It's right that we value and honour their place among us because we need them. As adults, we get cynical about the world. Sometimes we need the children to remind us it's Jesus who made the sky blue. Verse 2 tells us that it's in the youngest and the weakest and the most foolish members of our church family that we see the majesty of God. But, but it's not just about children. There's a little more going on here because often in the Bible, children and infants are, are put forward as the epitome of weakness and powerlessness, of vulnerability and dependence. And verse 2 is telling us that it's precisely through the weak and the powerless, which we see particularly in children and infants, that God shows his strength and silences his enemies. David is drawing a contrast between the typical way that we in the world show our strength with power and brute force and the way that God shows his strength, a surprising way God shows his strength, through weakness. But that is how God chooses to work. He loves to use the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He loves to use the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And so God silences his enemies through the weak. 
especially through the praise of children and infants. We see that literally fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus enters Jerusalem as the Messiah, it's the weak who gather to praise him, the blind, the poor, the lame, and children. And the chief priests are indignant when they hear these children praising Jesus as the saviour, just parroting what they've heard the crowd saying earlier. And the religious leaders, they say to Jesus, listen, you need to get those children to shut up. I love what Jesus says. He just replies by telling them, guys, haven't you read Psalm 8? His enemies are literally defeated by the simple praises of small children. Because that's how God works. He uses our weakness to establish his strength. He delights to use the weak and the powerless and the foolish to defeat his foes. And that's how we see his majesty. We see his majesty even in children's praise. And thirdly, we see the majesty of God in his care for us. Verses three and four, we see the majesty of God in his care for us. I I love looking at the night sky. Uh, Pictures like the one Dan showed us earlier, like this one. There's something about it, isn't it, that takes your breath away. I remember one time I was working with university students and we were away on a weekend away in a big house called Cloverley Hall uh, in the Shropshire countryside in the middle of nowhere. And, and one evening, as you do, we had a bonfire and it was the perfect night for, scar- for stargazing. It was clear and dark and crisp. And one of the students on that weekend away was a guy called Ryan. He was a physics student and he was also the president of the Astronomy Society. And so that evening, he took a few of us on a tour of the stars. Uh, The Big Dipper, Orion, Taurus, the Pleiades, telling us the mythical stories behind each of the constellations, telling us how long the light we were seeing had taken to reach our eyes. And at the end of our star tour, Ryan read Psalm 8. And I remember feeling moved as he read it because as I stood there staring at the sky above me I felt that deep sense of awe and wonder at the majesty of God at the beauty of the universe but I also felt very very small tiny insignificant in the universe it's no wonder that David writes is it verses three and four When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? What are human beings? He cares for us. When we consider the sheer size and scale of our universe and the shortness of our own lives, verse 4 asks the logical question, doesn't it? Why on earth... Would that God, who made all of that, care about me? What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? And of course, the right answer to that question is, well, we're nothing. Carl Sagan is is spot on, isn't he, in his response. We are people made from the dust of the earth. And before too long... All of us here will be returned to dust. We live 
on a tiny speck of dust in the minutest galaxy, and there are billions of them. In this universe, we're not especially important or valuable or significant. In the grand scheme of things, our lives are blisteringly short. It's easy, isn't it, to feel quite lost in our gigantic universe. That sense that maybe we are just a cosmic accident. Maybe nothing really does matter in the context of this universe. It's easy to feel, like Carl Sagan says, our planet's nothing more than an isolated, lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic darkness. We are nothing. Less than nothing. How can I matter? But it turns out that in Psalm 8, the right answer is the wrong answer. Because the majesty of God is seen in how he cares for specks of dust like you and me. Because into that dark sense of insecurity and lack of identity in this ginormous universe shines the bright love of God for you. We might be dust, but we're beloved of God, dust. And his love means that God is mindful of us, that he cares for us, that he's compassionate towards us. His love means you matter. You matter immensely, more than you could ever realise, because you matter to God. And do you see his love and care, it redeems our lives from that kind of cynicism and meaninglessness, moves us to celebrate his glorious majesty that a God who is that big, that glorious, that majestic, is mindful of me, is near to me in his fatherly love and care. I think that's why Psalm 8 is here. If you've been with us for this little summer stint in the Psalms, you'll realise David has spent the last five Psalms crying out to God to be mindful of his situation, to, to care for him. And Psalm 8 anticipates the sceptic's cynical question to David, why would God listen to you? Why would he care about you, David? You don't matter. You're nothing. But that's the majesty of God, isn't it? That he cares for us, that he is the kind of God who listens, who's mindful of us, who cares even about the most mundane things in your life like swings. Like the other Psalms show us, that means we can be confident God will listen to us. See the majesty of God in the way he cares for you. And fourthly, see the majesty of God in crowning us. See the majesty of God in crowning us. I said just before that in the grand scheme of things, compared to the size and scale of the universe, we're nothing, less than nothing, tiny and insignificant. And in one sense, of course, that's true, isn't it? But from another perspective, we are all people of enormous significance and importance. Because God has made us in his image. And in creating us in his image, God has given us 
profound dignity. Verse 5 says that we've been made a little lower than the angels and the heavenly beings. I want you to notice that. It's not that human beings are a little higher than the animals, just a bit more developed than the rest of the animal kingdom. No, it's that we're made a little lower than the angels. That, that's not ours by nature. We are still creatures made from the dust of the earth. But we are dust bags who've been kissed by heaven. Filled with the life and breath of God himself. And God has crowned us with glory and honour with his own attributes. Human beings, we have a majesty that is derived from God himself. We've been given royal status by him. We are kings and queens in this world. Joe Biden is kind of right. We are Amazing. And human beings are capable of doing extraordinary things, reflecting the God who made us. And that, that's reflected in the task that God has given us to do. Do you see verse 6? You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. These verses are a poetic reflection on Genesis 1, the way God gave Adam and Eve dominion to fill and subdue and rule over the world. That's what we were made to do, to rule over the land and the sky and the sea and everything in it, to govern the world as God's caretakers and stewards. Not to abuse the world or to destroy it, but to cultivate and care for creation so it flourishes to the glory of God. That's what we're for. We're not made just to reside in this world, but to preside over it. The majesty of God in crowning us with glory and honour given to us by him. But there's a problem, isn't there? Because we don't see this. See what verse 6 is saying. God put everything under our feet. Well, that's just not true, is it? Not anymore, anyway. It once was true. A very long time ago now. But not anymore. Because of Adam's sin, our crowns are cursed. Because of Adam's sin, the image of God in us is tainted and twisted and tarnished. Floods and droughts and viruses devastate our lives. It's very clear if you look at the world, we do not rule over it in the way God intended. Birds escape us. Fish elude us. Animals attack us rather than subject themselves to our rule as human beings. The next time you walk through a field of cows, ask yourself, who here in this field has dominion? Let me tell you, it ain't you. <laughs> Creation is no longer subject to us the way God intended. Psalm 8 is not our reality anymore. And the writer to the Hebrews knows that. Hebrews chapter 2, he says this, In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. He's saying, in some way, everything really does mean everything. You can't get around it by saying, oh, it doesn't really mean everything. It does. Yet, at present, it's true, isn't it? We don't see everything subject to them, to human beings. But... We do see Jesus, 
who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And that's the last way we see the majesty of God, the best way we see the majesty of God in Jesus Christ. See, right now, mankind does not have dominion over the world, but one man does. We don't see everything in subjection to humanity, but we do see Jesus. And Psalm 8 is true of him in every possible way. Jesus Christ is the one through whom all things were made. When you see the majesty of God in creation, you're seeing the majesty of Christ in creation. And Jesus is the one who is so majestic that he became weak. A small, vulnerable infant answering Satan's thunderous roar with a baby's cry. The ultimate display of weakness, the epitome of weakness and powerlessness and foolishness, Jesus went to death on the cross. But through the weakness of his death, he showed God's power to save sinners. Through the foolishness of the cross, he showed God's wisdom in rescuing us. And the accusations of the avenger were silenced forever. And Jesus did that because he was mindful of us. He went to the cross because he cares so much for you, because you matter to him. And so the one whose name is majestic in all the earth, whose glory is in the heavens, humbled himself, descending below the heavens, below even the angels for a little while. And by the grace of God, he tasted death for us in our place. But Jesus rose again to new life. And in his resurrection and ascension, Jesus has been exalted, crowned with glory and honor. And God has placed all things under his feet. And if you read on in Hebrews 2, God's purpose in all of that is for Jesus to bring many sons to glory, to share in his own glory and honour. See, what's true right now only of Jesus will one day be true of you if you trust in him. Jesus is bringing many sons to glory. He's restoring the image of God in us, which has been tainted. He crowns us with glory and honour that we might join with him in ruling over the new creation, in having everything under our feet, as God intended for all eternity. See the majesty of God in Christ. Oh, Jesus, our Lord, how majestic is your name. 